and you go and you watch a movie that's just come out and you come back and you want to talk to your friends about it, but they're all like, no, 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 no spoilers, right? No spoilers. Don't tell me. I don't want to know these things. Um, I do not think I am giving any spoilers away uh, if I tell you what you probably already know, which is that our world here in America, here in, in the Western world, is changing rapidly. If you looked at America in 1950 and you look at America today, what we value, what's important, what we say, what we're doing, they're very different. And and sociologists, people that look at these things will tell you that even the rate of change is increasing. That from, say, 1950 to 2000, there were less changes than there were from 2000 to 2020. The the culture is accelerating, that we're, we're changing. And from the, time that Christi- from the time that our country was founded, really even earlier than that, from the time that Europeans first settled here, Christianity has always had this central privileged position in our culture. And let's not say everybody was Christian or everybody agreed with it or anything like that. But the values of the culture and the values of the faith pretty much dovetailed. If you took two guys in 1950 living side by side and one went to church and one didn't, that could easily be the only difference. They would look remarkably similar in how they lived their lives, what they thought, the way they spent their time. Again, that's not to say that they were all Christians. I not even say the guy who went to church was a Christian. But the values that we held, they were very similar. And now that's really shifted especially here in America. Sociologists, have, uh, or Christian sociologists have a name for it. It's called ABC, anything but Christianity. Um, we, Christianity has moved from being like privileged and everybody accepting yes, okay. I mean, maybe I don't agree with that or I don't go to church or whatever, but that's fine, to just the opposite. To now, it's kind of considered offensive and a threat. So I was reading a book, there's a guy in England, which has seen this happen to them sooner, and he says there is an Anglican Christian church uh, school near where he lives, and since it's an Anglican school, it has religion. Religion's a mandatory class, and he said, in religion class, you'll learn about Islam, you'll learn about Hinduism, you'll learn about the Sikhs, you'll learn about the Jains, you'll learn about the Buddhists, you'll learn about everything except Christianity, because that would be offensive to teach about Christianity in a Christian school in England. Um, Anything but Christianity. And so, you know, when things change, we get stressed. That's a normal human reaction. And Christians respond to stress the same way non-Christians respond to stress the same way everybody all over the planet responds to stress, fight or flight. That's the two responses people have when things are changing around them and their world feels very tenuous. Fight or flight, and you've seen that. Maybe some of you have felt that. Christians who are fighting, they're saying, no, absolutely not. Christianity should be privileged. Christians should be in charge. We should be making the decisions. It's our country. If you want to live here, we're the ones to decide. We, we fight or we flight. We flee back, and you see churches and Christians doing that all over the place as well. We don't want to be on the wrong side of history. We don't want people to think less of us. If the culture has changed, we used to say A was bad and B was good, but the culture has changed. Well, then we need to affirm what the culture says. We either want to fight against what we feel like we're losing, or we want to withdraw and hide. And if you've read the Bible, 
and I know you have, I know you've heard it from up here, you've heard it in your small groups, it's rare that scripture encourages us to fight, and it's rare that scripture encourages us to flee. I mean, there are a couple times that it says that, but almost always, scripture says the way we face issues is we stand. We stand firm. We don't attack people, but we don't retreat either. We don't go after folks, but we don't flee. We stand. And I will give you a spoiler for the rest of this sermon series. I think that the next 10 years are going to be glorious. And I mean that word literally. I mean glorious. Because, so I'm a classics major. I study history. When the culture turns on the faith, oh my gosh, the faith grows unbelievably. In the late 40s, the communists took over China and they kicked all the Christian missionaries out. The ones they didn't kill, they kicked out and they imprisoned every Christian leader they could find. The church in China, missionaries have been there for about 100 years, a little over, and the church numbered a few thousand people, well under 10,000 believers. And everyone assumed that was the end. Like, that's it. They've tossed out all the Christians who were there to teach them. They've imprisoned all the Christian leaders. Christianity will, will die. 25 years later, when China opened back up, Christianity was not numbered in the thousands. It was numbered in the millions. Today, Christianity is numbered in the tens of millions, maybe a hundred. In many of your lifetimes, there will be more Christians in China than there are people in America. And all of that under a government that wants to destroy faith. A government that considers Christianity an existential threat because Christianity says you have your final allegiances to Jesus. And the government of China says your final allegiance is to the communist church. Excuse me, the communist, the communist party, not the church. You can have whatever other little allegiances you want, but the party must come first. And Christianity says you can have what other little allegiances you want, but Jesus, in the end, it's got to be Jesus. When the culture turns against the faith, oh, the church grows exponentially. I did ministry with college students in the early 90s. And now suddenly, you know, all these years later, I find myself doing ministry again. I would never go back to the 90s. Every kid I talked to in like 90, 91, 92, I was on a small college in rural North Carolina. Every kid I talked to about the faith said the same thing. Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. Because they'd all grown up in churches. They'd all been baptized or confirmed or whatever it is had to happen in their particular denomination. It didn't matter that they weren't living anything like Christianity. Sure, I'm a Christian. Of course, I go to church. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I did with my parents. I don't know if I don't in college, of course, but... When I would talk to kids about, no, you can't, you shouldn't be doing that. The way you're partying and drinking and sleeping around, that, that's, that's not good. They'd all say, oh, yeah, I know. But I'll change later. It'll be okay. Now, when I sit up at a coffee shop and I tell, I'm talking with some college kids, and I say, hey, the Bible says you shouldn't get drunk. They're like, what? The, the, the Bible says What? They've not read it, they've not grown up with it, they're not Christians, and they know it. I have more conversations about the gospel in a month today than I had in a year back in the early 90s on a college campus. This is a 
glorious time to be a believer. Because when the culture turns against the faith, wow, God shows up. In 50 AD, we figure there were thousands of Christians, well under 10,000 Christians, much like China. In 60 AD, the Roman government figured out that Christianity was a problem and started going after it. Nero persecuted the church in the 60s. Domitian persecuted in the 80s. Trajan persecuted in the first decade of 100s. Hadrian persecuted it in 120. And in 150 AD, Christianity numbered in the hundreds of thousands. And that pattern continued for the next hundred years. Emperor after emperor tried to stamp out the Christian faith. And in 250 AD, Christianity numbered about a million people. So in 300 AD, Emperor Diocletian had enough and he instituted the largest, most brutal, oppressive repression against Christians. They would round up every Christian they could find in a town, torture them to find out who they'd missed and put them all into the Colosseum. Like these are the stories you get about hundreds of Christians being killed by lions, gladiators, stabbing people, and all these things. This started in around 303 AD, and it continued for the next 25 or so years until Constantine took over the empire and stopped it. In 330, when Constantine finally finished conquering the empire, Christianity numbered over 6 million people. That's over a tenth of the empire. In an age when being a Christian, the best thing that could happen to you if the authorities found out was they took all your goods, all your house, everything, and turned you out on the street penniless. And the worst just was they put you in the arena and killed you. And this is where we get stories of, of groups of women in the arena and the gladiators come out to kill them and they're saying prayers of blessing for the gladiators, for their wives, and for their children. And gladiators start converting to Christianity because they've never seen people this. They have spears and swords and an army and there's a dozen women in front of them who have courage they have never seen before. When the culture comes after the faith, oh my goodness, God shows up. Why? Why does the church grow so much under persecution? Because it doesn't always happen. There are cases where persecution has, in fact, wiped out the church. When it grows, why? Church historians will tell you it's always the same two things. One, Christians have better answers than the pagan world does. Everyone on the planet has the same questions. It doesn't matter whether you're a farmer in 800 BC in Assyria or you're a member of parliament in Britain in 1800 AD. We all have the same questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? What's gonna happen to me? Is there any purpose and meaning to these things? Everyone across all of time and space in humanity asks these same questions and Christians have answers. And the second reason historians will tell you is because Christians have better lives. Because when they are persecuted, when the emperor, empire says, look, we don't care if you're Christians, but you gotta worship the emperor. You gotta worship the gods. We don't want them to be mad at us. But worshiping the emperor is like saying the Pledge of Allegiance to them. Everybody does it. Have whatever gods you want, but you've gotta also worship the emperor. It's part of the cohesion that binds the Roman Empire together. And millions of Christians said no and chose to lose everything, including their lives, if necessary. And people saw that. 
when a Christian and a non-Christian look identical, and the only difference in them is one goes to church and the other doesn't, why become a Christian? When Christians and non-Christians look different, again, when you're sent out to stab a woman, and before you kill her, she prays a prayer of blessing over you, your wife, and your children. Oh, you will remember that. You will go home and struggle to sleep remembering that. Christians had better lives. So that's what we're going to spend our fall doing, talking about how do we have better answers and how do we have better lives? Because again, I think the next few years are going to be glorious as our culture turns more and more away from Christianity, we have more and more of a chance for people to see what the church actually looks like, what the gospel actually means. So if you've read in the loop or you came to our our, uh, Sunday afternoon service, a little meeting afterwards, or you've heard, we're going to start Wednesday night classes in a few weeks. And one of those classes is going to be on having better answers. So Dante Hawkins and I are going to do that class, and it's going to be about conversational evangelism. Dante went through the C.S. Lewis Institute, and he's taken their stuff about apologetics, and he's, you know, put it in a way that the rest of us who aren't super geniuses like all the C.S. Lewis people are can understand it. And on Wednesday nights, we're going to talk, we're going to have discussions, we're going to do role plays, we're going to practice. How do we answer the questions that people are asking? Because The real question, who am I? Where do I come from? What does this matter? Those are all the same questions. But we have to answer them in ways that make sense in our world to the people who live here. Just like I'm preaching to you in English, right? I know French. I could preach to you in French, but that wouldn't be very helpful for you. We have to answer in ways that people understand. So if you don't feel like you can talk to people, if you feel like, oh, if people ask me questions, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to answer. Come hang out with us. It's going to be about eight weeks long each week. We're just going to go over the answers that we have as Christianity. Something Peter will tell us as we go through Peter, he'll say, always be ready to give an account for the hope you have. We're going to talk about practically how to do that, and we're going to practice it. That's Wednesday nights. We're going to have better answers than our world. And here on Sundays, we're going to talk about living better lives. Because again, this is not the first time in history that a culture has diverged from Christianity. It happened, as I said, it started around 60 AD when the Romans figured out the Christians weren't Jews and they weren't going to keep to themselves. Wow, they were not going to keep to themselves. The Jews, they didn't like the Jews, but they stayed off in their own little corners. The Christians, oh my gosh, they go in the marketplace. They go to where the philosophers meet. You read about the Apostle Paul. First he goes to the synagogue. Then he goes out in the marketplace and talks to the business people. Then he goes to the philosophy schools and debates with the philosophers. Christians go anywhere and talk about Jesus. And the Roman authorities don't like it. It scares them. And they start to clamp down and try and destroy it. And wow, you clamp down on the church and it just comes through your fingers. You can't stop it. So we're gonna do the book of First Peter. So after that uh, 16 minute out of a 30 minute sermon introduction, don't worry, we're not doing very much of the book to begin with, turn in your Bibles to First Peter. We're gonna do the first two verses because Peter is writing in the early 60s. Peter is writing in the time of the first major persecution of Christians under Emperor Nero. Peter is writing to Christians in the Roman Empire. We'll we'll see that as we read it. Um, And you'll see as we go along how often he talks about that they are suffering for being believers. 
that people are accusing them of things, that people think poorly of them, where 20 years ago, nobody cared about them, now folks are coming after them. And he's telling them, this is how you need to respond. This is how you need to live. These are the kind of people that you need to be. So turn with me to 1 Peter. I'm going to read the first two verses. And as a fa- Tim said he was excited about, he didn't know about this. So Tim and I have a Bible translation discussion that goes on. I read from the NIV. It's our pulpit Bibles, excuse me, our pew Bibles, if you read from those new international version. Tim reads from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And so we split. I do NIV here at, uh, in the service. When we meet as a staff team together, we read from the ESV. They're both great translations. They're just different ways of people trying to express the Bible in English. So to all of you who read the ESV, who have been waiting, I am going to read the passage this morning out of the ESV. Don't get used to it, okay? It's not got just, uh, ju- it, it is just a special dispensation for today. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 from the English Standard Version. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's the introduction. Every ancient letter is the same way. You know, we say, dear so-and-so, and we end with love, Jeff, right? And so if you get a letter that doesn't have a return address on it, what's the first thing you do? You flip to the last page to see who wrote it, right? In the ancient world, they just got that taken care of right up front. The very first thing on the letter is from, the very first thing on the letter is love Jeff to so-and-so, and then you get it. So the letter opens, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You've probably heard me say this before. Apostle's not a religious word in their world. It's a normal everyday world. It means a messenger or a, a herald. It's a courier. It's somebody with a message. It's somebody that's been sent to, to bring you a message, to tell you something, because there's no email and there's no phones and there's no newspapers and there's no internet. Everything is done by writing it down, handing it to someone who takes it to you. And then you can read it or reads it to you and tells you what it is. Peter says he has a message from Jesus and then he tells us who he's writing to. And he uses two adjectives to describe them. The first one, to those who are elect. Elect is a fancy term because, you know, the ESV is fancy. It's a fancy term for chosen. The word elect means chosen. Now I want you to think. Can you remember a time when you were chosen? So I know this is going to come as a shock to many of you. In elementary school, Jeff was not known for his prowess on the recess field. I know, I know, you can't believe it. It's true. It's true. Young Jeff was not known for his athletic ability. So when we played kickball, you know how kickball is done. Two very athletic gentlemen, in order to make it fair, they will alternate. You know, there'll be 30 kids out there. The two best players will be the captains. And then they'll just alternate, and that way the teams will be equal until you got down to the last three or four people, which would include me, at which point they would just look at each other and go, yeah, you just kind of divide you down. We didn't matter. None of us mattered. We knew none of us were going to matter in that game at all. That was me, always at the end on kickball, until one day, ninth inning, 
two outs. We're up by one run, two men on the bases. You see how I'm building this? So, right. Easy pop fly kick to our captain, the most athletic guy on our team, Jeff Dyer, right? So, you know, it's up in the air. He goes to catch it. We're all kind of moving towards it like you're supposed to, right? And I'm moving from like wherever the heck they had put me so far away, but they're coming. And the unthinkable happens. Jeff Dyer bobbles it. Ninth inning, two outs, two men on bases, and Jeff Dyer pops it back up in the air, and I'm loping on in, and all of a sudden, there's the ball, and I catch it. Game over. We win. It's the only ball I ever caught in all of elementary school. The next day, the next day, when we played kickball, Jeff Dyer picked me first. I appreciate you awing. That's good. No. Because, let's face it, I'm 57 years old. I think that happened when I was 12. And I still remember it. Which could mean I really need to get a life. (laughs) But doesn't it speak to what it means to be chosen? There were 30 kids out there, and at least 29 of them were better than me. And the best player in our entire class looked at all 30 of those people and said, Jansen, I'm sure that's happened to you. You applied for something and you got it. Someone chose you. That's what Peter says. And like what I felt when I'm standing back there and it's like, yep, here we go. You know, I'm going to be last. And the guy looks at me and goes, Jansen, you're, you're with me. That's what Peter says we are. We're chosen, the God of the universe who can have anything he wants, who can make anything he wants, who can do anything he wants. The God of the universe looked at the world and said, you, come on, you're with me. Now, please understand, I'm not getting into a debate on sovereignty and personal freedom, none of that. You're, feel this, feel what this means, you're chosen. Out of the whole planet, God chose you. Out of everyone, of anyone he could ever pick, God chose you. That's what Peter says to these guys. First thing out of his mouth, to those who are elect, to you who are chosen by God. And now listen to the second word out of his mouth, because they're right next to each other. The elect exiles. That word doesn't mean you've been kicked out of your country. It means you don't live in your country. It literally means you live away from your people. It's not your world. The people you live around, they're not your people, and they're not your world, and it's not your culture. Have you ever felt like that? I mean, for some of you, that is your life. (laughs) Have you ever felt that? Like, these aren't my people. This isn't my place. I don't belong here. When Elizabeth and I were in Africa... You know, we're, we're, we're going along, we're learning the culture. Of course, we're fish out of water on lots of things. A holiday, a federal holiday comes up on a Tuesday. That's kind of unusual, right? You, normally your holidays are like Fridays or Mondays. This holiday comes up on a Tuesday. And I look on the calendar, it's our first year that I notice, wow, lots of holidays actually are Tuesdays or Thursdays. And I'm like, you know, on Monday I'm going to ask the employees about this. Nobody shows up. I mean, nobody 
Nobody shows up for work on Monday. I'm like, okay, they can't all be sick. Did the rapture happen? Did I miss it? Are the preacher people right? You know, did I not understand this? What's going on? So I asked a friend of mine, I think actually I asked my pastor, who's, he's African, but he doesn't work for me. I'm like, nobody's here. What's going on? He's like, oh yeah, they're making the bridge. Like, they're making a bridge? Really? It's like the government called them out. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. Um, if a holiday falls on a Tuesday or a Thursday, then we take the Monday or the Friday off. We make the bridge from the weekend to the holiday. It'd be dumb to come in on Monday and then be off again Tuesday. That'd be awkward. We make the bridge. I'm like, seriously? It's like, oh yeah, that's totally normal. I'm like, but, but these, I mean, these guys need the money. How can they not work in a day and not get paid? And wow, he looked at me like I sprouted a second head. He's like, of course they get paid. They're making the bridge. I'm like, no. It's like, it's a federal holiday. You have to pay them. I'm like, no, Tuesday's a federal holiday. Monday's a bridge day. I don't have to pay them for a bridge day. It's like, yes, yes, you do. Right? This is not, these are not my people. This is not my world. I don't understand this. I have to pay you to not work on a day that's not a holiday because there is a holiday coming up. Like, wow, I can, let's have started, so let's have Thursday holidays and make the bridge from Sunday, right? That would be better for all of us, right? Have you ever been in a place where you're just like, wow, these aren't my people? I mean, that's a, hu- a humorous story, but I bet you felt it in other ways. Like, I don't belong here. Peter says both those things are true of us. As Christians, we are chosen, and all that that means, all the wonderful, joyful things that that means, and we are exiles. These are not our people. This is not our world. This is not where we meant to be. We, again, literally, we live away from our people. We're immigrants. We're refugees. We're exiles. This isn't our home. Peter says both that these things are true. We are chosen and we are exiled. And listen to what else he says about this. Verse two, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knew this. Again, he's writing to people in trial and persecution and struggle. They're being attacked. They're losing their jobs. They're losing their income. They're losing their houses. Some of them maybe are losing their lives. Peter says, this is, God knew this. This isn't a surprise to him. This isn't something new. God's not up in eternity in heaven going, oh my gosh, I had no idea this was gonna happen. What am I gonna do? You are chosen, and God always knew that. And this is not your home, and God always knew that. These things, you're being elect and being exiled. This is according to the foreknowledge of God. He knew this. This is part of his plan. In the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is another one of those big churchy words. It it means to be made holy, which again is a big churchy word which means that you set something apart for special use. Anybody got plates in a china cabinet somewhere that only come out when other people come over? You know, plates that you can't put through the dishwasher and they're, they're super special. That's what the Spirit is doing, Peter says. He's making us special. He's making us important for obedience. So in his language, this is purpose. Why is God doing this? Why why does God know this? Why is this happening? Why are these things true? Why is the spirit at work in us? For obedience to Jesus Christ 
everything that's happening to these guys in this moment when the world has turned against them and to us in this moment, this is all part of God's plan so that we learn to obey Jesus. And again, purpose for sprinkling with his blood. That probably doesn't mean much to you, but wow, they would have known exactly what they meant, that meant. Because in their world, the way you set things apart to be used by the God, the way you take an ordinary dish and make it a dish fit for a God is you sprinkle it with blood. They would have done that everywhere they ever went in the Greco-Roman world. Every time they ate a meal, every time they went to a church service, every time anything, anything that was gonna be for the God. If it was just you, sure, use the everyday plates. But for the God, all those plates would have been sprinkled with blood. Peter says that that's what the Holy Spirit is doing, and it's not just this theoretical thing. It's going to happen. All the things that are happening to you, you are chosen, and wow, you are not living at home. (laughs) You are living in exile. All of that is part of God's good purpose that you obey Jesus and that you become fit for his service, that you are not ordinary anymore. You're not just a bowl. You're a bowl for a God. You are a bowl that is important and is set apart. It's still, it's two bowls. They look exactly the same, but one's been sprinkled with blood. And we put that bowl aside because that is only for worship. It's only for the God. Peter says, all these things that have happened to you, They're all part of God's plan. He knows this. He's at work in this. This is for his good purpose. You are not going to be ordinary. You are going to be incredible. You are going to be special. You're going to learn to obey in difficult times. And God is going to use all of that. It's all part of his plan. Remember, the two things, Christians had better answers and they had better lives. And this is part of us leading better lives, that we don't just look like everybody else. That as as the world goes nuts, we stand firm. That, That we look like Christ, which again is why gladiators started converting to the faith in droves. Because the people they met in the arena, wow, they didn't look normal and they didn't look ordinary. Peter says, that's what God is doing. And then his final words, and this is actually a prayer, the way he says it, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He's writing to people who are being persecuted. They are losing their livelihoods. Again, some of them may be losing their lives. And Peter's, again, he's an apostle. He's got a message. The first message he's got, he's told who he is, who he's writing to. The first message to them is, oh, May grace and peace grow and grow and grow in you. God is at work. This is all happening according to his plan. All of this is God at work for your good. We'll see as we go through this letter. Wow, it does not sound good. What's happening to them does not sound good. I'm sure lots of you feel like what is happening around you is not good. But Peter says, this is the foreknowledge of God. He knew it, he planned it, it's happening. He will absolutely use it for good. It's not the only place in scripture it says that God brings good out of everything. It does not matter what is going on, how bad it is, 
the all-powerful, infinite God of the universe, he can use it for whatever good he wants. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Did you notice we have the Trinity in this passage? God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. Wow, there's not a lot of places in Scripture where all three of those names appear in the same sentence. The Godhead is involved in this. What they are suffering, what we will see as we go through this book, the Godhead is involved with them. All of God and his Trinitarian nature, and no, please don't ask me to explain that because I can't. I just see it over and over again in the Bible. All of that is God at work for the good of his kingdom so that when China opens up 25 years later, there's not thousands of Christians. There's millions of Christians. When the culture turns against the church, the church just blossoms. If we can do those two things, if we have better answers and better lives. So this is how we're going to close. I'm going to pray this over us, and I want you to think about those two adjectives he used, chosen and exiled. Again, literally living away from your people, living apart from your people. And I just want you to meditate on them. Like, do you get that? Do they grip you? Do you understand the truth of both those things? That you are chosen, you are wholly loved. That that God loves you, God likes you. God thinks you're awesome. God wants you to be with him in his kingdom. So much so that he gave up his very life. And you don't live at home. This is not your world. Again, it's not the only place in scripture that says this. This is not our world. This is not our citizenship. Doesn't belong here. This isn't our city. This isn't our country. This isn't our world. We will ultimately be in Jesus' kingdom when he returns and exerts his control over all of creation and everything is set right. I want you to meditate on those two things that you are chosen, you are dearly loved. And this is not your home. And yep, you're going to feel uncomfortable. That things are not going to go the way you want them to go. People are going to make the bridge. You're going to have to pay them for it. That's the way the world works here. I want you to meditate on those two things. I want you to think about grace and peace. Like, do you believe that? Like, does that grip you? That whatever is going on in the world, I think Peter is saying, Oh, grace and peace are still yours because God, grace and peace come from God. And God, you know God is at work in everything that is happening. I want you to meditate on those things. So I'm gonna pray over us and then Justin is gonna noodle a little, give us a little music underneath. We're just gonna be quiet. We're just gonna meditate. It's gonna be for about a minute and you're gonna feel like it's for an eternity. That's okay. Then I'm gonna pray again and I'm gonna invite us to come to the communion table. So If you've been here before, you know the drill. There's tables in all four corners. There's gluten-free down here. I will pray again over communion. Please, after I finish praying, just get up, go to whichever table is closest or looks like it has the shortest line. Get the bread, get the cup, but bring it back to your seat. Don't eat it there. I will lead us and we'll take it all together. So let me pray over us. We'll sit for a minute. We'll meditate. Chosen and exiled. Both those things are true. And then we'll remember Jesus, who was both chosen and exiled. So pray with me. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your kindness. Thank thank you for Peter. Peter is going to die shortly. I don't know if he's imprisoned at this point. 
But he is not many years away from those same Roman authorities killing him for being a Christian. He is going to suffer, just like the people he's writing to. He is going to suffer for his obedience to you. And he will not renounce you. He won't attack and he won't flee. He will stand firm and he will die because of it. Thank you. Thank you for this example. Thank you for these words. Thank you for this reminder. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us, that that we would be reminded. Remind us that we are chosen, that you have chosen us of all people everywhere in the universe. You have chosen us, and we are exiles. We do not live among our people. We live in another culture, in another world world. This is not our home. This is not our final destination. Holy Spirit, bring those realities to us, just as Peter told us, that that we can hold them as we need to, knowing that both these things are true, that we can be dearly loved and chosen and blessed by you, and at the same time, be exiled. At the same time, as Peter will tell us, suffer, suffer terribly. Holy Spirit, be at work in us as we sit now in silence for a moment and meditate on this. And Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would remind us of Jesus. Jesus who went before us. Jesus who, as Peter will tell us as we go along in this book, was also chosen, was also dearly loved, and who also was an exile, who also suffered and eventually lost his life. Remind us, Holy Spirit, as we take the bread that represents his body, the cup that represents his blood, remind us. Help us to remember, just as the scriptures tell us, that that he has done this for us, that he has done this first. He's not asking us to do anything that he has not gone before. Help us to remember, Holy Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen.